My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Yes, it is summertime. The living's easy. The 4th of July is coming up. A lot of you are going to the beach. You're going to the shore. You're going, getting away. You're going somewhere. What is better in the summer than to read a book? Yes, we still read books here. Uh, so you know what we're doing? Today, Money Beat Book Club Summer Edition. And we have a classic for you. We are in the studio today. Let me tell you who, who all is here. Uh, we have Jason Zweig, Corey Drebush. Ben Eisen, Stephen Grosser, myself, and later, a special guest, the man who wrote the book we're about to talk about, Ben Eisen. Why don't you tell us what we have on tap? Thanks, Paul. Yeah, this is, a, this is an exciting book here. Um, where This is called uh, When Genius Failed, and uh, it's by Roger Lowenstein, who will be joining us later, uh, a Wall Street Journal alum. Um, and sort of selfishly here, I had wanted to read this book. It's sort of a classic that I think probably a lot of listeners out there have already read, but... Uh, I had never read it, and uh, so we decided to do this one, and i um, pretty excited about it. it. This is basically the story of long-term capital management, um, which was a hedge fund uh, that was formed by some some alums of uh, of Solomon Brothers, and they sort of built up this this uh, this this giant fund with a lot of uh, mathematical geniuses behind it, um, and then it all came down crashing spectacularly. So. A good cautionary tale for for any uh, period of time. Uh, Jason's why a couple of us here are old enough to have been working when this all happened in the summer of 1998. Uh, do you remember how much of it? Do you actually remember what were you doing back then? Uh, back then, I was uh, 1998. Uh, let's see, I was 14 years old. No, I was uh, <laughs> I was working at uh, Time Inc. as a as uh, covering the markets yeah. and. Um, uh, largely at Money Magazine and Fortune, and uh, a little bit at Time, and uh, it was a huge deal. I mean, a lot of people thought that the global financial system would collapse as a result of the enormous amount of leverage that long-term capital management had taken on, and it coincided with very bad events in Asia as well a lot of sovereign defaults and near defaults and um the global financial system was really tottering at that point yeah grocer yeah well, i was just going to say in jason might be best positioned to sort of talk about this just who like talk about the people who founded long term capital and why we have the headline when genius failed yeah well roger can fill us in even more but you know the the I guess the main genius behind long-term capital management was John Merriweather, who had been, if I remember right, head of government bond trading at Solomon Brothers and extraordinarily successful. And he built a great team around him, including another amazing quant, Eric Rosenfeld, whom I, I knew a little bit at the time. Um, but more importantly, they brought on two uh, Nobel laureates, um, Bob Merton and Myron Scholes, uh, who were two of the most brilliant people in all of modern finance who had helped build the foundations of options trading theory and um, 
uh, Merton is involved in something called the inter intertemporal consumption of wealth, which we won't get into right now. Uh, it sounds but, like another podcast. Yeah, it's another podcast yeah. that'll have two listeners. But, but I mean, this was as much intellectual firepower as Wall Street had probably ever seen in one place at one time, and um, these folks were just incredibly brilliant and. For a long time, running the fund, they were amassing one of the best records anybody had ever seen up until then. It was like well, he was—I think it was around forty percent returns per year, or something yeah, to right. that effect, with almost no volatility. Yeah. And 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 the interesting thing too is like you know we're used to like today seeing I think really big numbers with you know the size of hedge funds like twenty billion, thirty billion, but you know long-term uh, management got up to a hundred billion. And that's still that would be that's huge still by huge. today's still standard. Huge. I mean, right, I right. think it would be, uh, you know, the biggest, if not one of the biggest, today. But but now that was that was a that was an amount of assets itself, not yeah. the actual amount of money invested in the fund. And no, I think exactly I think that so. kind of gets to one of the problems with long term, which is that it was just so highly leveraged that you know they owned about thirty times as many assets as there was actual capital invested in the firm. Yeah, and, and cer certainly if we adjust for inflation, those numbers are f right. phenomenal because I think. From 1998 to today, that's 20 years. You probably more or less have to double yeah. to keep real now, purchasing now, power. Now, Corey, you were excited about this for book club because, and, and I think this kind of goes to the heart of, of why this is, you know, sort of a really well-known critical book. I mean, this was the first. Uh, well, explain to us your connection to the book. Yeah, so I think everyone when they start a new job, or I, I had just graduated from college and journalism school and got a job in financial journalism and was asking around what books are must-reads. And um, When Genius Failed was the first recommended book mm -hmm. I picked up. And I read it and loved it, thought it was fascinating. And this was the summer of uh, 2007. And it just came at such a time that as everything progressed, as Bear Stearns failed in spring of 2008, and then we got to September of 2008, all I could think of was this book and right. kind of the, the dialogue and the scene set, I think, toward the end of the book with what to do about bailing out long-term capital management and the people who were discussing it and the broad implications for not just the banks involved who were kind of covering the trades, but also the wider economy. Right. And that's kind of the real critical thing here, that, that that's the reason why this incident is so important and still mm -hmm. resonates now, almost 20 years later, is the Fed chairman at the time was Alan Greenspan. And as you guys were all saying, like long-term capital management's failure represented such a catastrophe to the financial sector globally that the Fed had to step in and orchestrate a bailout of the fund. And while importantly, they didn't put up Fed money, mm -hmm. just the, the mere fact that the Fed stepped in and, and orchestrated this bailout set a precedent. Well, and it also was, you know, it's, it's somewhat got repeated. I mean, you well, have exactly. like, you got yeah. the, you have the picture of, you know, the Fed sort of pulling all the bank executives in. Exactly. Um, I think Jimmy Kane was very resistant and like trying to get them to come to their own solution to the problem, which in 2008, the Fed tried to do again. And right. It, Did, didn't, if I remember correctly, didn't Bear Stearns in long-term capital in, when Genius Feld refused to yeah. Yeah, help out? So that was... 
ironic. That was uh, right. Yeah. I'm bitterly <laughs> ironic for Bear Stearns. That's a called later. karma. Yeah. <laughs> right. Ben, you were about to jump in up on the mic. I thought. I'm sorry. No, I, I think I think it's true that that it kind of has this, these timeless themes to it about you know, for what happens when free markets get out of hand and you know who should step in, when should they step in, um, and I think. Uh, you know, we talk about that period of low volatility that allowed long-term capital management to have, you know, such high returns for the the time period that it did. And I mean, you know, it's tough to compare what this current time period to that time period. But I mean, we are in this period of very low volatility. Um, and low volatility periods are those periods when uh, investors tend to build up leverage based on the premise that that low volatility will stick around for a while. Um, I mean, I'd be I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about you know, are there any similarities? Should we be worried? Oh, you're asking me if we should be worried. Of course, we should. <laughs> uh, Stephen Grosser. I'm sorry, you won't you well, jump no, in? No, no, I I, uh, I think you should, we should answer. I had another point, but you know, oh. you should answer Paul's. If sorry, to, sorry I mean, to put everyone on the spot here. Yeah, like I mean, that. look quickly, and I know we want to take a break and we want to get to Roger, but I mean, personally, I think the. The decisions that were made in the summer of 1998 in regards to long-term capital management set in what people have came to call the Greenspan put, which was the idea that the Fed was going to basically bail out the markets in any circumstances because they would not stand to have the markets fall apart. And, you know, it doesn't always work. I mean, the markets went down after 2001 and 2002. They went down again in, in 2008. But the Fed was always there to provide liquidity and keep things from completely falling apart. And and the markets have gotten – look, you have an entire generation of people now who know nothing but the idea that the Fed will come in and save the markets when things get really bad. Yeah, I think that's a problem. I absolutely think that's a problem. I think it is still a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the other – guy in the room with no hair. So uh, I'm going to take <laughs> roughly the same position as Paul on this one. I mean, the the great uh, financial writer Jim Grant has sometimes referred to what he calls the, um, the privatization of return and the socialization of risk. Right. And it's sort of if, if all the players in the market know that they get to keep the upside and they can hand the downside to Uncle Sam, they'll take huge risks all day long. And, and Although today it's a little hard to look at the financial ecosystem and point to a particular space and say there's way too much risk going on right here and these people are taking on a lot of leverage to do it, there's not much doubt that there's a lot of diffuse risk that's kind of sloshing around the system right now and I wouldn't expect it to end particularly well. No. Why don't we? Well, well, I, I was just going to make a, a broader point, and not and sort of not about whether you know the risk, um, you know, and the Fed's decisions and all that. One of the things I think that I found very interesting about the book was just sort of the history of the, the transformation that has happened in trading mm -hmm. over the last thirty years, and you know how the people that worked at long term capital management were very much a part of that as we moved, you know, as trading moved and became, you know, more based on quants and, you mm -hmm. know, math and, and, and stuff like that and computers. Yeah. All right. Look, let's take a break. When we come back on the other side, we are going to, joining us for book club, will be the author of When Genius Failed, Roger Lowenstein. My mother was very familiar with her neighborhood, but one day she stopped at the stop sign and she wasn't even really sure where she was at. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. 
Now is the time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Enjoy our podcasts? Then listen in your car. Before you start down the road, just sync your smartphone using Bluetooth or plug into the USB port. Got Apple CarPlay? Just tap on the podcast app and search for WSJ. So, the next time you're getting behind the wheel, take us along and enjoy the ride. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat Book Club. It's our summer edition, and we are discussing the book When Genius Failed, written by Roger Lowenstein. And joining us now on the phone is the author himself. Roger, how are you? Hey, I'm good and very happy to be in the show. We are really glad to have you here. You're talking to uh, people who know where you come from, Wall Street Journal reporters. Uh, you're an alumni of the paper yourself, right? Very proudly so, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. I, let's see. Someone in this news in in the studio right now. You, I believe, you know Jason Zweig, our Jason Zweig. Hey, Roger. Yes, I do. Yeah. You uh, book book types, author types, go back a ways, I believe, right? That's Some, right. Something That's right. like that. We knock about at conferences and whatever. Yes, right, exactly. Right. Uh, so were you? Hey, Roger. So in the summer of '98, when this all was going down, were you a journal reporter then? Yes, I was. Um, let's see. In the summer of '98, I was. Um, uh, uh, on the journal, what was I doing? I was writing the, um, you know, I was on leave at that point. I oh. was looking for a book. I had just left the journal uh, at the end of 97. Hmm. I'd written one book and uh, had tossed my editor a couple of ideas for the next one. I was actually so confident I was going to get <laughs> a book idea. I just left the paper, you know, without having it. And... Um, Jason can tell you that these things always don't happen as quickly as you want. <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. Um, so I was just, you know, hunting around through, I don't know, historical episodes and whatever, and then all of a sudden there's this big news break, uh, this fund, which had had this sort of vague, mysterious, um, but, you know, incredibly respected images, basically the can't-miss guys. Uh, they missed big. Um, that's, of course, LTCM. So... Um, you know, my editor called me up and said, I, I don't think you have to look any further. I think you got your next book. Wow. So you knew that soon that this was this was. And I mean, that's interesting because I don't know that you could have possibly foreseen it or maybe you could have. Maybe you're that prescient that you could have possibly foreseen the, the long standing ramifications that event was going to have. You know, I hope we get into that because in the one hand, it had a lot of ramifications. On the other hand, I would say it had. No ramifications, except, of course, they got a book out of it because of the, <laughs> the many ways in which the errors uh, were repeated and have been repeated. Um, I think um, Galbraith said after he wrote The Great Crash about uh, the Great Depression that only economic historians are asked whether the, the events they've just written about are going to be repeated. You know, again, nobody asks if, you know, the Battle of Waterloo is going to be fought again. You fought it once and that's it. But, you know, economics seems to be... Um, you know, more cyclical. Anyway, I, I didn't um, have any prescience at all, but there was something um, very nice and uh, from a reporter writer's uh, sense about the the storyline because, uh, well, Norm Perlstein, also a former Wall Street Journal veteran and, of course, managing editor and executive editor, once said there are only a few story types. I don't remember all of them, but one of them was um, how the mighty have fallen. You know, mm -hmm. people like, mm -hmm. people being people like that kind of a story, and these guys were really mighty. And um, 
it spoke to me personally, you know, in a larger way, which because this fund uh, uh, was feeded for having um, designed models at SoCal, so you know, so they said couldn't fail, and because of the way I've always written about investing and the the types of investing that I've always supported, I've always been suspicious and skeptical and you know, doubtful that this is something you can do with a model and just stick in a desk drawer and you know come back to it and it never fails. And so it was a story I really wanted to tell. Hey, Roger, when we uh, sort of talk about some of the, the ramifications of it, I feel like we sort of have to get into the the Fed and, and the, the bailout that the Fed orchestrated for long-term capital management. And, you know, it's interesting at the very end, you sort of get into kind of the ethics and the moral hazard of, of, of what the Fed did with long-term. And you have this line that, uh, here, I'll read it. Um, the Fed re- regrettably squandered a choice opportunity to send the markets a needed dose of discipline, uh, which I thought was interesting that you sort of took this view that perhaps the Fed shouldn't have stepped in here, that perhaps the banks that took part in the bailout sh- shouldn't necessarily have done that. And I'm curious, one, if that's, I, I guess, the, the correct translation of, of, of your thinking at the time, and if that's sort of evolved since, given everything that we've sort of seen yeah, since that, then. that was my view. And because, and interestingly enough, you know, I, I took the opposite view when the Fed um, got way more involved in, in bailouts in um, 2007, really 2008. Uh, the reason I felt that way in, um, in 1998 and, you know, in the next year or so when I was writing the book and really thinking about it, I, look, you, you, you know, the, the answer to when the government should get involved in bailouts is, is easy. It's, uh, the answer has got to be uh, as infrequently as it has to. So the, the, the burden should be on the phrase has to. And I just didn't think that, uh, and I thought had the Fed not called those bankers together in the room and so on, and as you put it, orchestrated, of course there was no government money in that bailout, I thought markets would have recovered, uh, might have taken a little longer, things might have you know, sped downhill a little more, but uh, at the end of the day, their assets, um, I, I, thought, I thought the losses would have been manageable and would have been managed, and mm-hmm. In fact, what happened in, in this case, there was a really clear um, echo or, or, or a boomerang because immediately uh, what happened was first the, the Fed called bankers in. They, they arranged for what then seemed like a lot of money, a $4 billion loan. You know, that's, that's a rounding error in the TARP, right? But, right, right. Um, you know, and then right after that, they reinforced the message to markets with a bunch of, um, of rate cuts. And right after that, eBay had its um, its IPO. You know, went from you know, Jason, you might remember this. The numbers that I had were twelve dollars to one hundred and forty dollars in the first three hours. I don't remember yeah, what something exactly like that. were, but yep. that was when the the dot com mania, uh, and it really was a mania, you know, as evidenced by all the bankruptcies that soon followed, right. took off. In in the year um, in two thousand and eight, I just had a different feeling about where we were on the spectrum of has to. I thought that um, uh, that LTCM was basically a financial event, and it didn't have widespread repercussions and wouldn't have in the work-a-day economy, you know, amongst the general electrics mm-hmm. and the general motors and the um, the constituencies in, uh, you know, industrial and working America. In 2008, I, you know, I didn't feel that at all. I, I thought that 
and obviously we weren't. We were in the throes of a a very terrible uh, economic recession. It wasn't just a financial event. It wasn't just something that you know people like us like to talk about over beers and so on. Um, it was a you know it, it was a reenactment of a sort of the Great Depression. So I I thought there, uh, you know. We don't have time to get into every bailout, which ones, how should yeah, they yeah, do it. Yeah. But I thought a federal, a very activist federal response was, ne- was very necessary. Uh, Roger, uh, this is Corey Drebusha for the Journal I'm on the Markets team. We were talking Hi. before you came on a little bit about what, just since we've, we saw that in 1998 and then we saw something a little similar but bigger, obviously, in 2008, if there are, there's anything in the market right now that worries you, that makes you think about um, the long-term capital management and all the leverage they were taking on, and I think the, the risk. most worrisome thing, and but it's a thing without, I'm not going to be able to give you a good answer on it. Something I, I know Jason thought about as well is I look at places where people feel really uh, comfortable mm-hmm. and really assured. And because of that, comfort and assurance start to put more and more money in, so that you know, a they're 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 assuming that there's no risk, and and they're loading up, and there's a lot of stakes, you know, riding on it. And I, I think that pretty much describes uh, equity indexing today. You know, there's just yeah. more and more money going in. The, the index has gone up, uh, you know, so steadily. Unlike, I think, with individual stocks, I think most people, some people know that when they buy a stock, it can go down. But, um, you know, I think we have kind of gotten inured by this, you know, wonderful so far rise in all of our 401ks and everything. And and I won't say dumb money, I'll just say unthinking money, which is a very different thing. But unthinking money is going into index funds. And, you know... It can go out as quickly as it can come in. We know that, right? Right. And, and I think it can go it, out quicker. Very, yeah, a lot quicker. Yeah. It can be, you know, very shocking and very painful. I mean, a lot right. of people who say, this, this isn't fair. My, my company is a good company. Why is the mm-hmm. index dragging it down? Well, um, I, so that's, that's the area yeah. that, um, you know, that I worry about the most. And I right. think investors should be cautious about The book is called When Genius Failed. The author is Roger Lowenstein, who has been with us. Roger, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. I love talking to the Wall Street Journal. All right. Well, you know what? We we do this often, so we'd love to have you back on. All right. You bet any time, folks. All right. Everyone, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Enjoy our podcasts? Then listen in your car. Before you start down the road, just sync your smartphone using Bluetooth or plug into the USB port. Got Apple CarPlay? Just tap on the podcast app and search for WSJ. So, the next time you're getting behind the wheel, take us along and enjoy the ride. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.